0: Ephesians six seventeen to 18. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and if this is of view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Lord, again we come to your Word, and we confess, Lord, that without Christ we can do nothing to... To preach your word, I need Christ for us to hear your word, to receive it, to do it. We need Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that even now your spirit would work powerfully through your word in us, Lord. We ask this for your glory. Amen. Do you love to win? Do you love to win? I know that most of you do because I know most of you and I know that you love to win. I normally love to win. It it doesn't matter what it is. If I'm playing Monopoly, I want to win. If I'm arguing with my wife, I especially want to win that argument. Got to win. Whether good or bad, I think there is within each of us, at least most of us, have this desire to win, even from a very early age. Yesterday afternoon, we were playing dodgeball in our neighborhood, but it's a dodgeball and a box, not a cardboard box, but you draw a box with chalk, and you can't leave that box. And we were playing with the neighborhood boys and girls, and there was this one boy, I think he's maybe five or six, and we're playing dodgeball, and he got hit. And there's about maybe seven or eight of us. And he just got so angry. And he, he went, I I don't want to lose. I want to win. I want to win one time. I want to win. And his face and you know his skin turned from white to red. And he was very upset, very angry that he didn't win. And he was maybe five or six years old. And I, I think... For most of us, it can be that way, and many things in life, you know, sports, personal relationships, jobs, whatever it might be. There can be this, in our heart, this desire, not just to compete, but when I compete, I'm going to win. The question is, do we have that same drive, that same intensity, that same desire against sin, temptation, and Satan? I got to win. I like to compete, and I'm going to win. Do we have that same drive, that same goal to win against temptation and sin and Satan? It says here in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, it says... Verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, we have this intense struggle and this idea of this one-on-one personal combat, wrestling down in the dirt. And it's not against one another, but it's this war that we have against sin, temptation, and Satan. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, verse 13 so that you can resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, Stand firm, therefore. It's the idea of there is this onslaught, a horde of temptation from your own remaining sin and from Satan, and rather than falling down to it, you stand and you fight. You have your shield, you have your sword, you have the helmet, breastplate, you have the shoes, you're you're ready to go. You're you're not going to retreat and... And give up in the struggle against sin. You're going to fight it, and you fight it to win. Do we have this in our hearts, whether it's jealousy, whether it's anger, whether it's greed, lust, malice, do we have in our hearts this desire, I'm going to win, and I'm going to fight you to the death. Anger, jealousy, greed, lust. As it says in Colossians 3.5, Paul writes in Colossians 3.5, and some versions say, mortify... The best translation would be put to death. If you wanted to be literal, basically it would say, execute, slay the sin, the temptation that we have within us. We need to fight that to the death. We need to have this attitude like this little boy that was, I don't want to lose, but against our pride. And for being like Jesus. So the thrust of this sermon and I think this passage Ephesians 6:10 through 18 is that you fight and you fight to win against Satan and sin. And there are six means to do this. In Ephesians 6:14 he says therefore stand and then after that he gives all these adverbial participles on how to do that. You can see having, 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 taking, and so forth, all the way down throughout the passage. We've seen at least three of them, and then we're going to look at three more this morning. And again, these are means to stand and fight sin and temptation and Satan and to win. But to clarify... It's not necessarily the force of this passage that you're fighting against the sin in somebody else. There may be a time for that, to to rescue those that are perishing and to speak the gospel, the word of truth to others, to seek to correct them. That can be part of this, but the main idea of this passage is you and your fight against sin and temptation and Satan. So then, how do we do this? We've looked at three, and now this morning again, we're going to look at three others. And so, number four. Number four. The fourth means to stand and fight and to fight to win is by glorying in the awesomeness of your salvation. Glory in the awesomeness of your salvation. If you want to, you can say, by exulting, by praising in the awesomeness of your salvation. If you had a magic helmet that was indestructible, if you don't like the word magic, if you had a helmet that was scientifically constructed where it would always protect you and could never ever break and even a nuclear blast could not damage or crack your helmet at all, what would you do with with that helmet? You know, what I would do is I would patent it and then sell it and make a lot of money off of it. That's what I would do. There would be a type of exaltation. If you had this type of helmet that you could wear and put on, I could create it and make it, and I could go play football today in the NFL, and I could, I could be a running back and go straight through that line. And then there would be lots of glory, and lots of exaltation, and the awesomeness of that helmet. Well, in this context, it's, it's warfare. And it's battle. It's not a game. You can look at verse seventeen and take the helmet of salvation. And Paul again is giving different descriptions and pictures of how we can withstand temptation and Satan. And is using pictures of a Roman soldier and the provision that he has. Well, we have even better provision from God. And one is salvation. And Paul describes it here as a helmet of salvation, that it can protect you. And so I want us to look at with this point, the what, the why, and the how. The what, the why, and the how of not just the helmet of salvation, but actually exalting, praising God for it, praising God for the salvation that we have. So first, what? Well, first, when you look at this, the grammar is a little bit different. You can see... Previously, in verse 14, it says having, having, verse 15, having, verse 16. It even says taking up the shield of faith. And then all of a sudden, in verse 17, it just says, and take the helmet of salvation. The the grammar is a little bit different. It goes from adverbial participles that are modifying the imperative to stand to actually just being a finite verb itself, no longer a participle that usually requires something to modify but here this verb can stand by itself it's this imperative and take the helmet of salvation in other words the writer Paul is doing something different with the grammar it's a a little bit more powerful and then in the Greek text the helmet of salvation comes before the verb take it would be and the helmet of salvation take it That's how the Greek would come across to those that heard or those that were reading this. There's a little bit more emphasis. It's a little bit more emphatic. Why is that? Well, perhaps because it's talking about salvation. But it could also be because already Paul has talked about the truth, righteousness, that is justification, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. And so now maybe as you get to verse 17 and it talks about salvation, he's wanting people to understand, though it's not necessarily the most important in this list, it is not less than any of the others. And that would go also with the sword of the Spirit, because it also comes underneath the word take. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm saying to exult and to, to glory and to relish this awesomeness of salvation, to truly get it in our hearts and minds, would be, I think, the idea of this word, take. Take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, take it up. Because it's very important. But also, we should understand this as well. It's a little bit different. Then 1 Thessalonians 5, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul also talks about the armor briefly. And verse 8 of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be somber, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. That is, when Paul gives an illustration, he's not saying that there's necessarily a breastplate of righteousness only, and that's it. Rather, it's a a picture about justification. Here, he's giving another picture, but not necessarily of justification or or peace, but of faith, love, and salvation. And here, when he talks about the helmet, he says the hope of salvation. And in context, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he's talking about salvation in terms of? The return of Christ. Now, if we go back to Ephesians, you have a very similar phrase, and take the helmet of salvation, but the hope of salvation is not there. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, in context, he's talking about the salvation to come. That is the return of Christ. We have this hope That we wear as a helmet. My hope is not in that the Republican party will win. My hope is in that Jesus is going to return. That's my hope. Well, this is a little bit, a little bit different than that. In Ephesians 6, 17, when it says the helmet of salvation, already Paul's talked about salvation in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 8. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, By grace you have been saved. And verse 8 of chapter 2, he also writes, By grace you've been saved. And that is... The grammar is you have been and are being saved. It's called a, a perfect passive in the Greek. And what that means is... Something outside of you, God himself accomplished something for you. God accomplished something on you, completely did that in the past. It's finished, but it has abiding results even to this very present day. Completed action in the past with abiding present results. That's the idea of the perfect in the Greek text of the New Testament. So here when he says the helmet of salvation in Ephesians, it can involve heaven, yes. But Paul here in this context to the Ephesians is saying that what I want you to think about, to, to hold on to, is the work that God, that God did and he finished it for you completely in the past. And it has tremendous present results right now for you. And that's what the Spirit of God is wanting us to to wear as protection. That I have been saved, and even now, I'm being saved. And one day, finally and forever, I will be saved. Why does Paul talk this way? Really, you could start in the beginning of the book of Ephesians. And Paul is going to great lengths to help the, the believers in Ephesus to understand the riches of their salvation. Why is he going to such great lengths? I mean, he prays several times such things that they would understand the, the riches that belong to them in Christ and, and the power that belongs to them in Christ, even the love of God that belongs to them in Christ. Well, why is he writing this way? Well, it's because Satan doesn't want you to know. The enemy wants you Ignorant and dumb about your salvation. And by dumb, I mean mute. He wants you not to know how great your salvation is and doesn't want you and I talking about it. He doesn't want you and I to glorify in our salvation. He wants you and I to believe our salvation is insignificant, mediocre, powerless. doesn't really matter that much. That's why Satan wants us to believe. The Spirit of God is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus and to you and I, that we could have this type of protection. It would be like this unbreakable helmet, that no matter what assault, sin and temptation and Satan and the world launch at me, I know that I have been saved. And I am, even now, being saved. And one day, I will be saved forever and forever and forever because of the return of Christ. It's actually very important that we understand our salvation in the past and the present and even in the future. For example, I'm just going to give you several examples. Your salvation was secured by the triune God. You're not, every believer, if you've trusted Jesus, it's not just that you're just a little bit saved. Nobody's just a little bit saved. You are completely saved by such a fantastic, unimaginable work of God. It's bigger and better than the creation of the earth. That is the wonder of our salvation. And the whole triune God was involved in it. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 3 through 14 basically talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and how they've, the triune God, the different members of the Godhead, through their work, God is one, many persons, three persons, saved us. You can see in verse 4, He chose us. Verse 5, He predestined us through Jesus Christ. To the praise of the glory of His grace. You see that in verse 6. Then in verse 7, in Him we've been redeemed. It's talking about Jesus and, and His work. Verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ. Verse 11, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Then verse 13 talks about the work of the Holy Spirit of God. We've sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit who's given to us as a pledge that the work that God started, he will fully bring it about. The Holy Spirit is given as a type of engagement ring. That God will keep his promise to us. Who is involved in your salvation? The triune God. Are you just a little bit saved? Is your salvation, you know, maybe I can lose it, maybe I, I, I can't. The whole Godhead saved you. Each member of the Trinity has been and is involved. Not only that, you can see that anything that you need for the spiritual life, you have it. Look at Ephesians 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with how many blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Anything spiritually that you need, you have it in Jesus. Anything that you need to say to Satan, no! to remaining sin and temptation, to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think that way. You have it in Christ. It's in Christ. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing and in, in Jesus Christ. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Hebrew is, I lack nothing. God is your shepherd. You, you lack nothing that you need to live for him. This is our Salvation. Not only that, but it's not only that God is your inheritance. The Bible teaches that you're God's inheritance. You know, I, I've had people that I love that have died and have left me things. And there's a type of inheritance that I've got that I was very thankful for. <laughs> you know, praise God for that. And throughout history, when somebody receives an inheritance, it can be incredible. It can be very helpful. But when you look at Ephesians, not only is heaven our inheritance, not only do we inherit all that Christ has, Scripture talks about that we are God's inheritance. What? Believer, not only do you inherit heaven, the Bible talks about that God treasures you. Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance. Also we have an obtained an inheritance. Now, if you look in your margin, you might see a, another translation of that. In my margin, it says, we were made a heritage. We were made an inheritance. In fact, if you look at Ephesians 1.18, it says in Ephesians 1.18, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints? God's inheritance and the saints. For those that, for you, that are precious, you're precious because God laid his love upon you. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. While yet we were sinners, Christ died for you. And the way, believer, that God looks at you, you are a treasure to him. That's what the Bible says. Not because you're so perfect, but because he chooses chooses to love you in an extra special way and set his love upon you. That he became a man, lived a perfect life. Died on the cross for sinners and rose again, and he came not to be served, but to serve. There was a guy, I think it was Benny Hester, Christian musician decades ago, that wrote a song called When God Ran. God ran after you and saves you and redeemed you and seeks to be with you forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. And forever. That's incredible. You're his inheritance. This is salvation. There's so much, of course, that that we could look at. Even verse 7 of chapter 1, the forgiveness of sins by the death of Christ on the cross. There is so much, again, that is here. Ephesians 3, 6 says we are fellow heirs. God is our inheritance, but in Christ we inherit all that is Christ. All of us together inherit all of heaven and all that belongs to Jesus is ours. This is our incredible salvation. Even the power to overcome sin, we, we only saw that in Ephesians 1, 18 through two ten. But you can also look at Ephesians three sixteen That he would grant you, according to the riches of glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit and the inner man. That is, by the spirit of God, we can have this power of God within us to overcome sin. And it's according to what? Chapter 3, verse 16. According to? how much of his glory the riches of his glory that is the infinite almighty power of god can fill you by his spirit in such a way that there is nothing in terms of temptation or sin that you are unable to overcome there's no temptation or sin that you can't defeat there's not if if you're saying there is that's a lie from satan you're believing a lie here in the book of Ephesians, which is God's word, all the power of God is yours to say no to temptation and sin. This is the salvation that we have in Christ. Even chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are new people, a workmanship specially created by God. It's incredible. Even Chapter five. We can look at so many places. Chapter five, verse one says, "You're a beloved child." It's the the Greek phrase for his favorite child. In Christ, you're like God's favorite child. That's incredible. When you get to heaven, Scripture does talk about a type of judgment for believers, not in terms of sin, but in, in terms of reward. However, all of that needs to be understood with this idea that God is going to treat you now, in the past He did, now He is, and then forever and forever as His beloved child. There's no better place to be than heaven with Jesus. No better place. But even now, God is telling the believers that they have all the resources in Christ and all the power of God they need to say no to sin and temptation. This is all underneath what? About glory in our salvation. And so that's why I'm going at length, because we need to understand how glorious and how awesome our salvation is. Because, not necessarily from you all, but from Different people, from relatives, from neighbors, uh, history, different churches. I've heard, you know, can you lose your salvation? Can you get unsaved? Saved means what? Saved. It would be a bad salvation if you could lose. It, it wouldn't be salvation. If you can lose your salvation, then it's not salvation. Redemption isn't redemption unless you are redeemed. It'd be a lousy work of redemption. The only way that you could lose your salvation is if God was a liar. That's the only way. And God is not a liar. He created truth. Jesus is the way and the truth. And he says, this good work he began in you, he will what? He will finish it. He will finish it. Now, the why. That's the what. So then, the why. We have said this, but let's say it again. That is, why, why is this here? Why the helmet of salvation? Because Satan, the enemy, doesn't want you thinking and acting out of a high view of salvation. He wants you thinking and acting out of a low view of salvation. He wants you to be like Eeyore. You know, you know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? He kind of whines. I can't believe this is happening to me. Oh, I don't know. I'm just a little bit sick. It's too much temptation for me. Just really like everything's bad and temptation is, is too powerful for me and Satan, it, it's too much and I, I, I don't know. I, that's not... The way the Bible describes your salvation. Your salvation is that God transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That does not mean there's not going to be a struggle. If you're not struggling, then you're probably not saved. You will struggle until you see Jesus. Jesus. By God's grace, we want to press forward and be conquering more and more sinful habits. But you're going to struggle until you see Jesus. So stop whining and fight. If you're in a battle and you start to whine, oh, there's a bunch of works coming my way, goblins, hobgoblins, that's a big troll. What am I going to do about it? Oh. What's going to happen? That troll's going to have a big hammer and just go, Smash you. Get up and fight. You have all the resources that you need in Christ. This is the helmet of salvation. So fight. Fight. God's fighting for you. Jesus is fighting for you. The Holy Spirit is fighting for you. Many in their church are fighting for you. What are you going to do? Fight. Sin and temptation. Fight sin, temptation, and Satan. How do we do that? The what, the why, the how. Well, how you do that is to remember, you're not fighting for salvation. You're fighting out of salvation. You're not fighting for victory, necessarily. You're fighting from victory. I've already won in Christ. I'm already saved. I'm not doing this so I can prove myself to God. I'm not doing this to get to heaven. I'm filled with thankfulness. I want my life to make a difference. I want to glorify God. I want to see his power through me. I've already wanted Jesus. No, no. I'm not going to do that sin. That sin is stupid. What kind of benefit will that sin give me? Nothing. Then why do it? No. It might appease for the moment. It might please me in the long run. No, I'm not going to do it. No. And so you fight out of salvation, not for salvation. How else do we do this? I think one of the ways is really worship, that you're worshiping Christ. If you look at Ephesians 1 through 3, right after Paul prays in verses 14 to 19, then he worships. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Paul, after he goes to Great Leaves, talking about our resources in Christ, and then he prays we could get a hold of those resources in Ephesians three fourteen through 19. And then at the end, he goes into worship now to him who was able to do, even beyond all that i 've ever asked or I think or what I could ever imagine, God can do it that 's worship, and I think that if we worship more and more the Lord and his power, and even turn times of temptation where I might be tempted to maybe to be greedy, to be angry, whatever it is, and to seek to use that as, you know what, God's given me everything I need. God's in complete control. I I trust him no matter what. And to use that as a time of worship, that's powerful. And then by God's grace, I obey him, and then I can see his spirit working powerfully through me, and then that leads me into greater worship. Perhaps we don't see the power of Christ in our lives by His Spirit overcoming sin because we're not seizing opportunities to worship Him as we should. Fight to win by being amazed and giving Him the glory for your great salvation. You're not just a little bit saved, believer. You are greatly saved. All of you. If you've trusted Jesus alone, You're greatly saved. Fight to win against sin and Satan. Number five, a fifth means. You can see this in verse 17. Be the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Stand, fight, by welding the word like it's a super sword. I didn't say super soaker, it's a super sword. Weld the Word of God like it's a super sword. The written Word of God is a super-powered instrument by the Spirit of God for defeating sin and Satan. The Word is a spirit-empowered, greater than a samurai sword, greater than an Excalibur, greater than Sting, greater than orchrist or Glamour Dream, is this sword here. The sword of the spirit. So again, what? What are we talking about? Well, there's a historic dynamic here when it talks about the sword. The Roman soldiers had a gladius, gladius, and it could be um, about this big, maybe that long. This is not that sword. This is a different sword. This is a from a dagger to a Bowie knife. Maybe you've seen the Alamo. Or Daniel Boone, or something like that. A, a Bowie knife could be anywhere from eight inches to 12, 13 inches long. This is this knife here that it's talking about. This bladed instrument in verse seventeen. It's not like a uh, a knight, you know, during the medieval times, like big, huge, two-handed sword. It's not that. This th- this is a shorter knife. Why did the Spirit of God pick this shorter knife? Well, because it's an intense struggle, and it's not like almost like you're jousting. It's not like you're in a ranged combat where you can stand like this, you know, like fencing. It's not like that. You're what? You're down on the ground. <laughs> if you're down on the ground, you can't take out this big this big sword. You go for a smaller sword. It's talking about this very intense fight. And God says, for this very intense fight, I've given you a super-powered, spirit-empowered short sword, our or dagger, our long knife, to do this combat, to fight to win. But not only that, if you further, if you look at this passage, it says, the sword of the Spirit... It's the sword that belongs to or is of the Spirit. And, of course, in context, it's the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that produced and empowers this sword. It's not a normal sword. It is a supernatural sword, but supernatural in a good sense. This is very similar to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it talks about the nature of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And again, if you look in your margin, it says, at least mine does, literally, God breathed. The Greek word there in 2 Timothy 3.16 for inspired is more of the idea of breathed out. As It's theonoustos. Theo means... God, new or new star, means spirit, and the os, the anustos means produced. It's God, his spirit, breathing out, produced, and made the word. You can read Genesis 1, and what does Genesis chapter 1 say over and over again? God said, let there be, and then it happened, right? God spoke and something was created. It's the same thing with here in 2nd Timothy 3:16 is that God spoke and he created the word of God, the Bible. And then it says together with this that in 2nd Peter chapter 1 Verses twenty through twenty one, but know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That is the the Bible, not not the leather you have, or the paper, or the ink, but the the truth of Scripture, Scripture itself, what it is saying. God got written exactly what he wanted written and did that through human instruments as the Spirit of God was upon them. God saw to it that they wrote what God wanted to write. And what God had written is authoritative and it's powerful. It's creative power, but it's also destructive power, right? God, at the end, will... Destroy the whole universe. Even when Jesus comes back, it says, it talks about the, the sword coming out of his what? Mouth. So the word of God, this written word, because it says, if you go back to Ephesians, it says in 6.17, which is the word of God, and that is this written word of God, what God has produced through his holy prophets and apostles, which he talked about in Ephesians 3.5. It is the very Spirit of God energizing His Word with power to enable believers to use this short sword to fight against temptation and sin and Satan. And it's produced and energized by the Spirit. That's why another example is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is what? Alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, able to penetrate as it were the joints and the marrows, even judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart, so that every creature is open and laid bare before God. That's the power of God's Word. That is the spirit dynamic of God's Word. There's another dynamic with the Bible, but especially Regarding this verse, look back at Ephesians 6 17 and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Normally, if you have the phrase word of God, it would be logos. I think many Christians know the word logos. The Greek word means basically uh, word logos. This is not the word logos. Here, when it says the word of God, it's not the word logos, it's the word rima. It's the word rima, which means not just a written word, but it means a, an utterance, a spoken word. It's used many times in the Gospels of Christ or others speaking. The emphasis is on the spoken word. And it's even used in Romans 10, verse 17 when it says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible, when it wants to be nuanced, can be very nuanced. It can be general, but it can be very nuanced. And there is a special nuance of God's word. The, the written word is powerful, but there's also a, a blessing that attends the spoken word of God. Preaching. But even when you share the word to somebody else, that is the rima of God, this utterance. The spirit-empowered, energized word is being orally published, and God uses that in a powerful way. This is what this scripture is saying. So much so, and you're familiar with this, but so much so, that is, God, His power is in the written Word of God, but also in the spoken Word of God. When you give the written Word of God orally, God uses that in a powerful way. So much so, that even our Lord Jesus Christ, when He was tempted, what did He do? Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted... Verse three, and the tempter came. Verse four, Jesus has tempted. And it says, the text says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on the bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here is the living word of God, God in the flesh, the one that had written Scripture, and he himself is fighting Satan with Scripture. And he does this three times. Satan tempts them again. And then Jesus says again to him, uh, On the other hand, it is written. This is what the written external objective word of God says, Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tempts him again. And Jesus says, Go, Satan. For it is written. It's The external, objective, written word of God, Satan, says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him and serve him only. Then the devil left him. There is a unique blessing when God's word is spoken. It's not just this meager word. You know, If you take maybe a very common, overused verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all the ones who believe in him should not perish, but have incredible, abundant life forever and forever. Is that just a meager verse that you just kind of casually share, and it's just gone on the wind? Is God's word, when you speak God's word, is it just... and just goes... Is it ever ineffective? No, it's always effective. Second Corinthians says in the second chapter, it will be effective basically either to judge or to save, or one of the two. And so here in our context in Ephesians six seventeen, the Spirit of God is saying, "Use the written word of God and speak it. Speak it when you're tempted. Say out loud." Quote the verse out loud. Again, I've shared with you before that for that time, I was really afraid of passing semi-trucks. Long story, I won't get into it. But got to the place where I had to start saying to myself, and I would just speak it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will have no fear, for you are with me. And it makes a difference, I think, to speak that and and to preach that to yourself. Now, then, specifically the how, how how can we do this specifically? We see that the what is God gives us an offensive weapon. It's both defensive and offensive, right? Right? The, the sword, it's a smaller sword used for this an intense battle. It's spirit-empowered. It's the written word of God, and I need to, to use it. And there is, though it doesn't have to be Earl, right? You, you can quote it to yourself in your mind. But there seems to be this attenuated blessing when God's word is, is spoken. God's going to use it. But then, specifically, how do we do this? So first on how do we do this? We looked at the what, now the how. Well, to memorize it. You know, I'm, I confess I'm horrible with memorizing. So currently I'm trying to re-memorize Psalm 46. I, I memorized it two months ago and now I've forgotten again. Not all of it, but the last section of it. I have to always, I have to memorize something and then use it all the time for about a year. Otherwise I'll forget it. And so I can do, you know, Philippians 4.13, and I can do Psalm 23 and some others, but I have to work really hard at memorizing Scripture, and then I have to use it. But it makes sense. If you have any kind of sword or any kind of blade, and you use it, but don't sharpen it, it's going to get dull, and then it won't be that effective. It will be somewhat effective, but not that effective. So memorize the word, go over what you've memorized. The best thing for me is to use them when I'm being tempted, to use it when I'm driving, to use it during my own worship and praise time. Second, focus on specific verses for specific issues. So if it's anxiety, then Philippians 4, 6 and 8, right? Be anxious for nothing but thanksgiving pray and let your request be made known to God Philippians 4 6 to 8 if it's lust there are several first Thessalonians 4 3 for this is the will of God your holiness that you abstain from sexual immorality well that's pretty clear <laughs> or like first Peter 1 14 15 be holy so memorize specific verses for specific temptation maybe it's anger you know I, I would Yes, memorize Ephesians, is it four twenty six? Be angry, <laughs> but memorize all of it. <laughs> that is, you have to deal with it. Don't let the sin go down. But better, James one nineteen, be slow to anger. Right? quick to listen, quick to speak, slow to anger. Uh, Luke twelve fifteen on greed. I don't have this one memorized. I want to memorize it. Luke twelve fifteen. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now we've seen that when Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus just didn't go, Genesis 1-1 says, and God created the heavens and the earth. And then Satan tempts him again. God created the heavens and the earth. And then Satan tempts him again. God creates the heaven. and God created the heaven and the earth. That's a great verse. But Jesus gave specific verses that matched the temptation. So memorize verses that match your temptations by what you're usually being tempted by. It's great to carry your Bible to church. It's great to have a Bible at home. It's better to have the Bible where? In your heart. Memorize it, hold it dear in your heart. It's great to hold the Bible and to kiss it. It's better to have it in your heart and to embrace it here. So use the word and when you're tempted, have these verses memorized that you can use it against that specific temptation. Don't memorize a verse just to give to your children. Memorize a verse to give to who? Yourself. Now, of course... Be in prayer. Be in prayer. And then we'll finish with this final point. Be in prayer. The sixth means is by fighting on your knees. By fighting on your knees. Now we've had two sermons. One when I first came here. And then a few years later after that, or five or six years after that, going through the book of Ephesians. But now we come back to Ephesians 6.18. And John this morning talked a little bit about Ephesians six eighteen. So that wasn't planned. I, John and I didn't plan on both speaking about Ephesians six eighteen this morning, but God did, and it's providence. So it must be that God wants us to do what—to fight on our knees. Fight on our knees means we humble ourselves in prayer and we have this horde of temptation and Satan coming after us, you know, through the world, through remaining sin, the world system. What do we do? We stand, we fight, we have a shield, we have a helmet, breastplate, shoes, we have you know, we tie our belt tight, we're ready. And then we get on our knees and we pray. And that's how we fight. This commitment and this attitude Of prayer. Now, when we talk about prayer, we mean talking to God for pardon, adoration, request, and yielding. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God about pardoning yourself, others, adoring God, requesting things from God, and then yielding to God. That's the acronym. And some people use it in, in many different ways. That is, you can take that acronym, pray, and just Think of other ways you can do that. One person does petition, repentance, adoration, yielding. But specifically, just briefly, I want to mention just a few things here. There is this vigilance that's here in verse 18. And I'm not necessarily going to follow the outline that you have there in your notes because of time. But when you look at verse 18, it says, With all prayer... Pray at at all times, be in the Lord with all perseverance for all the saints. There is this intensity to be wholly consumed in prayer. All, 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 all. Who am I going to pray for? Everybody. All the saints. When? All the time. What kind of prayer? All kinds of prayer. You know, I'm I'm going to be praising God, I'm going to be thanking God, I'm going to be interceding for others, I'm going to be petitioning God for myself, I'm going to be complaining, everything, I'm going to be praying to God in all kinds of different ways and, and, and manners. For even people, even believers that I don't like, especially believers I don't like, I'm going to pray for it. Even Jesus taught us that. It's this word, all, all, all. This type of prayer. But it is this, this vigilant prayer. You can see he talks about perseverance, but pray at all times and especially here, be on the alert. This idea of when I'm weak, I'm going to pray. When I'm strong, I'm going to pray. When it seems like everything is rosy and peachy and creamy, and I'm maybe I'm not going through lots of trials, I'm especially going to pray. And for even other people that are doing well, I'm going to keep praying for them. You know, I'm always going to be on the alert of Satan's schemes and, and his, his his strategies, how he attacks me, how he attacks others. And so I'm going to be watchful and when I hear about something, I'm going to pray about it. Maybe right then. And it doesn't have to be a long prayer. Uh, when John was teaching this morning, I mentioned to my daughter, if you look at this verse, the tax collector prayed one sentence compared to The Pharisee that prayed many sentences. Who went home justified? The one that said one sentence in a prayer. It's not necessarily about the length of your prayer. It's about the sincerity of your prayer. Are you being sincere in your prayers? And are you taking time to be alert? I'm going to pray for all the saints. And I'm going to be vigilant in my own life. And even vigilant for others. And have this sincere attitude. Even further, if you look at this, he talks about perseverance. Never giving up, never giving in, praying at all times. And then pressing on in that prayer. We've heard of many illustrations and many stories of this idea of perseverance and even with the parables in Luke 18 and other places in the Gospels of this knocking and asking and seeking and not giving up. God wants us and has ordained that some things that we are praying for in life, there are some things that God will give them to us quickly. Other things he wants us to what? Keep knocking, keep asking, keep persevering, keep fighting, keep pressing on. But I do want to point out one thing here that that I think is very interesting, and then we'll come to a conclusion. If you look at verse 18, it is talking not just about praying for yourself, but pray for others, because at the end of verse 18, it says, and petition for all the saints. Now, in one sense, I don't understand this, in one sense. And what I mean is, here this passage is about you standing, and you fighting against temptation, and sin and Satan and you yourself, you have your own unique temptations and you're going to fight them. Okay? By God's grace, I can do that. And as you're doing this, you need to get on your knees and pray. You know, God, I need help. Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Okay, yes. I, I, I get that. And pray for others. Yeah, but I'm being tempted. Right now, I'm, I'm the one that's being tempted. Yes, pray, tell God you need his help, tell Jesus you need his help, and then as you do that, pray for others. What? How does praying for others help me to fight my own temptation? Because I think that's the context, fighting your own temptation. And when you fight your own temptation, yes, pray for yourself, all kinds of prayers, but especially be in prayer for all the saints. I think the idea is, usually my temptation comes because I'm thinking about who? Usually my temptation comes because I'm thinking about myself. Temptation and sin is, in its nature, selfish. And so if I'm becoming more oriented in my spirit to, how are these other people doing? How can I... Help them. Lord, how can I pray for them? I'm going to be praying for all these dear, beloved saints on how they can grow in Christ, on how they can withstand temptation. I'm going to be concerned about their needs. And I want them to be esteemed and honored and blessed. And I want them to do well. I'm going to put their needs ahead of my needs. If I start praying that way and start thinking that way, that's going to help me with temptation. Do you love to win? I think most of us do. Do we love to win against this fight that we're in with sin and temptation? May God give us his grace that we have a greater passion to, to fight against sin and temptation and to stand and to fight and to win. And the, the reality is two realities. One reality is we don't know when we're going to die. So two weeks ago, on the way home from the airport again, I was hit by a, a drunk driver. I'm very thankful my kids are okay. That could have been the end. Could have died. Could have been smashed to pieces. Gone to heaven. I know there are certain sins in my life, probably your life, that you're like, ah, I have to really just deal with this once and for all. Why wait? Let's fight now. Now is the time that we can fight against sin. Let's fight it by God's grace and for his glory. Let's fight sin. Let's fight the devil and fight to win. Why not? What benefit is there to losing in the battle against sin? What benefit does that give you and I? None. So I think God is saying to all of us this morning in this passage, fight, fight, fight. Fight against Satan. Fight against sin. Fight against temptation and fight to win. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Lord, with dependence upon you, not waving a flag of independence from you, but with a flag of dependence upon you, Lord, we desire you to fight against Satan and sin and temptation and to win for your glory. Lord, help us to continue to grow overcoming sinful habits in our life, that you would be exalted, Lord. We praise you. We give the glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.